today, as you can see the slide behind me, we're going to celebrate Black History Month by celebrating what is called womanist theology. And I'm going to explain what that means uh, in a moment, but I want to begin with a question. And that question is, what are some stereotypes of Iowa or Iowans? Go ahead and get into, go ahead and get into groups of two to four people around you, just people you came with. Come up with, what are the stereotypes of Iowa and Iowans? Go. Okay, let's come back together. We're a chatty bunch today. Let's try. I, I want to hear some. What, what do, and, and let's be nice and sensitive, but what are some stereotypes that people generated? Anyone? Ohio, yes. Good. We're tough, okay. Farmers, yes. Iowa nice, yeah. Talk about the weather, yep. Where is Iowa, right? Ohio, Iowa, Idaho, somewhere, yeah, yep. Yeah, so, um, you know, corn, uh, flat, Iowa's flat, Iowa's very white. This is one stereotype, which is actually true. 90% of the population of Iowa is white. Um, now, these stereotypes of Iowa, Iowans, they can be unpleasant, but most of the time, there's not a lot at stake in stereotypes related to Iowa and Iowans uh, because Iowans, generally speaking, enjoy relatively high status when compared with other people groups, depending on the social situation, context, whatever. Um, and this may be true, admittedly, with especially white Iowans. If I'm, for example, in Florida on vacation, and someone asks me, oh, where are you from? And I say, Iowa. And they're like, oh, corn country. You know, nothing's at stake there. You know, I'm not going to, like, get bad service at a restaurant or whatever because I'm from Iowa. That is not true with all stereotypes. If we considered other stereotypes of other groups of people for whatever reason, um, they can be very, very harmful. Not all stereotypes are created equal. The power and potential harm of stereotypes depends on who's generating them and how they're used and why. So February is Black History Month, and today we're going to celebrate black history by learning from a contemporary black theologian and ethicist who's done a lot of work with how prejudicial stereotypes work. So let me introduce you to uh, the academic scholar, uh, a pastor ordained in the Baptist church, Dr. Emily Towns. Um, so she's a Baptist minister. She's also the current dean of Vanderbilt Divinity School. And she's a leading voice in what is called womanist ethics. She wrote a book, and I want to share the title with you, She's written several books, but this was one. It's called Womanist Ethics and the Cultural Production of Evil. This is not a subtle title. She has something to say, and we're going to learn from it today. Um, let's see. Come on. Get my slides back. All right, so what is womanist ethics and theology? The central concern of womanist ethics is to examine the intersection of sex, race, and class, and how those work together and shape power and social status. Now, if that sounds familiar to you, like a common analytical lens, 
you can thank womanist ethics, who've been working on this for decades now, since the 80s. And uh, it's become a very, very common way of thinking about the world, asking questions about race, sex, class, and the intersection of those, and how they're working in terms of power and social status. This is one more way that black history, black culture, has influenced American history, culture, and academic world. So in the book, Dr. Towns asks, what are some of the common prejudices or prejudicial stereotypes of black women? She looks at primary images of black women and girls that are found in the consumer economy, so think marketing and advertising. In media, so what stories are highlighted in the media about black women and girls? and in institutional frameworks. So she looks at statistics related to black women in the workplace, in healthcare, in education. And she asks, how do these images shape our individual and collective imaginations, and how then do they result in further inequity? Now, it's normal for people to rely on stereotypes. Okay, it just happens all the time, and Dr. Towns admits this. But she points out, as I mentioned earlier, that not all stereotypes are created equal. In the United States, where we have centuries-long traditions shaped by racism and white supremacy, we still have lingering stereotypes towards non-white people that further serve the interests of white people and white institutions. It is very hard to shake these. We continue to see how media, marketing, and institutions perpetuate prejudicial stereotypes, sometimes unconsciously, sometimes quite intentionally. Now, I want to summarize what Dr. Towns suggests are three virtues or practices on how to fight against or overcome prejudicial stereotypes. I'm going to go through these very quickly. We're going to come back to them at the end. So the first is authenticity which is the value of recognizing in ourselves and in other people each person's unique individuality that cannot be reduced to oversimplified images or stereotypes. The second is critical introspection, taking responsibility and examining within ourselves prejudicial images and how they function inside of us. And then finally, hope exercising hope for changing the status quo of prejudice and building a more just and equitable world. All right, now, with that uh, introduction, I want to apply Dr. Towns' analysis to a story from the Gospels, one in which we're going to see prejudicial stereotypes at work, how they influence what happens in the story, and how they influence how the original audience would have heard the story, how we read it today. Okay? Let's have some fun. This is going to come from Mark, the book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark, one of the versions of Jesus' life from chapter 7, picking up in verse 24. From there, Jesus set out and went away to the region of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know he was there. Yet he could not escape notice. But a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately heard about him, and she came and bowed down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile of Syrophoenician origin. She begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. He said to her, Let the children be fed first, 
For it is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he said to her, For saying that, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. So she went home, found the child lying on the bed, and the demon gone. Okay, so this is a story of a successful healing, but the story really centers around the tension-filled exchange between Jesus, a Jewish man, and this unnamed Gentile woman. The tension exists for good reason. So at the time of Jesus, there were all sorts of stereotypes leveled and generated on both Jewish people and Gentiles. And it all depended on the context and who was using them and where you were uh, for how those stereotypes work, the power that could be associated with them. So in our story, there are two prejudicial stereotypes at work. The first is an image of a dog. So Jesus initially rejects the woman's request for help. He says to her, it is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. In Jesus' statement, the children are Jewish people. They are Jesus' own in-group. Okay? His ethnic identity are children. And the Gentiles, anyone not Jewish, are dogs. That might sound a little derogatory, because it is. It is. To call any person an animal, unless done affectionately, is to dehumanize them. They are less than human. They are an animal. And they are undeserving, then, of the same attention and dignity and resources that all humans deserve. So by applying the stereotype of dog to all Gentiles, including the woman who's come to him for help, Jesus is saying that she is undeserving of his healing ministry. She is not a child of Israel. Okay, so um, this is interesting, isn't it? Um, And I want to acknowledge that for some of us who grew up in traditions that... uh, you know, give a very, very high status to Jesus, and that includes maybe many of us, it can feel a little weird to start to think about Jesus throwing around a prejudicial stereotype in this story, and it kind of kind of mess with our theological categories. So if that's happening for you, just acknowledge that within yourself, like, okay, this is kind of weird or interesting, what's going on, and just hold on to that, okay, work with it. Okay, because there's more. There's another stereotype at work here. The second prejudicial stereotype in the story is of the legendary Jezebel. The legendary Jezebel. So the name Jezebel is the name of the famous or infamous queen in the Bible. She's married to King Ahab, the wicked, wicked King Ahab. He's one of the kings listed in the long uh, stories and history in the Old Testament and the Hebrew Bible. Together, the two of them, Jezebel and Ahab, set up altars to foreign gods. This is a bad, bad thing, okay? So they set up poles to Baal and Asherah, two competing rival deities 
of the God of Israel. And they lead the nation of Israel astray from worshiping the God of Israel and said people are worshiping other deities. So they're treated in the biblical history a little bit like Aaron Burr in United States history or Benedict Arnold. Like they did this really, really bad thing and that's what everyone remembers. That's what they're known for, right? This is our Aaron Burr. Okay, Jezebel is not mentioned in the story. So why am I bringing it up? Two reasons. The first is location. So real quick, here's a map. Jesus is in the region of Tyre and the city of Tyre, which is in the upper left quadrant on this map. Uh, you can see the green arrows, which is Jesus' journey. Uh, Tyre's right on the Mediterranean Sea. I'm sure it's lovely. Um, but it's Gentile area. It's all Gentile, not dominantly Jewish in that area. Jezebel is from Tyre in the Old Testament. Her father was the king of Tyre. So when Jesus goes to Tyre, whoop, checks the box. But also in the story, the woman is Syrophoenician, which is also what Jezebel is. Another big box. Okay? So Jezebel's reputation looms large over this story, and Mark's original audience would be hearing, oh, Tyre, oh, Syrophoenician woman, oh, Gentile. That's just like Jezebel. Now, Jezebel, by the way, is a term that continues to be used today, and maybe you've even heard this used, but sometimes um, people will call women a Jezebel in an effort to diminish them. And this is usually applied to really strong women pushing for some kind of change to the status quo. Wow. And it's an effort to diminish them, to push them aside, to silence them. Um, the term says way more about the user trying to label the person than it does about the label, you know, the person being labeled as such. To give you an even more extreme version in the United States history and connecting with black history, Jezebel, that word was used to justify slavery. All black enslaved women could be called Jezebels. They were heathens. They were others. They were, you know, they needed to be controlled and conquered. And it really served as a justification for white slaveholders to do whatever they wanted to black enslaved women's bodies. They were Jezebels. They needed to be controlled. So this is obviously a very extreme version of this label, of this uh, cultural production of evil, as Dr. Towns names it. And the image is not working in such an extreme way in our story, but it's still here. The Syrophoenician woman, a Gentile from Tyre, she is for better or for worse, a sort of stand-in, a representative of Jezebel. And that's exactly what Mark's original audience would be thinking as they hear the story. Okay, so Jesus refuses to help her. And he uses this prejudicial stereotype of a dog in refusing her. How does she respond? She says to him, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. I just want to cheer every time I read this line. This is so great. This is so awesome. She's amazing. This is so bold, so cheeky, so mm, yeah. 
You know, she uses the term dog self-referentially, but she's not necessarily agreeing with the, the stereotype. You know, it's, it's almost as though she's engaging in this sort of playful banter with Jesus, adopting his own lens. And, and so while she does it, she's kind of overturning it or subverting the very lens that she's adopting. And then she calls Jesus Lord. That might seem kind of ordinary to us. We're used to that. But in Mark's gospel, she's the only one to do this. There is not a single other person who calls Jesus Lord except himself. He refers to himself a few times as Lord. But she's the only other person to do that. Nobody else calls Jesus Lord in the entire gospel. And so she's inhabiting Jesus' own perspective, adopting his lens on the world and on himself. And she's overturning and overcoming these stereotypes about her as she does so. And so the audience would be hearing this and thinking, oh, would a, would a dog, would a Jezebel say that? Would, would that person call Jesus Lord? The story is supposed to surprise us, or at least surprise the original audience of Mark's gospel. Look at her. Look how she's interacting with Jesus. Wow. Wow, what a moment. But the audience's surprise is an indictment of their prejudice. It is because of such low, contemptible views of the woman that she rattles their expectations. She's an exception to a general rule of prejudicial stereotypes. And maybe they're still true. Maybe, after we read the story, well, Gentiles are still dogs, are they? Or the question still hangs in the air. Are Syrophoenician Gentile women of Tyre, are they all kind of like Jezebel? Is she an exception to this rule that we know to be true? This is what Dr. Towns calls the cultural production of evil. The prejudicial stereotypes still persist. Even when we encounter, quote-unquote, exceptions, people that maybe surprise us, our surprise is our own indictment that we had such low expectations in the first place. Why did we have those? Where did they come from? It's not necessarily wrong to be surprised. It's just real. That's kind of what happens. But what we do with that surprise makes all the difference. Do we step back and examine what was going on there? Why are we surprised? Why did I have such low expectations in the first place? Who told me that this Gentile woman was not supposed to get it? Where did that come from? Who told me that? The stakes can be really, really high today. For people groups with not as much power or status, Prejudicial stereotypes perpetuate inequity, limiting access to resources that the dominant people groups enjoy. Okay, so what do we do? Well, I want to return to Dr. Town's three virtues that we can practice that help us resist prejudicial stereotypes. And we can see all three of these virtues present in our story. 
So the first is authenticity. Authenticity. The woman in our story, she embraces authenticity. How does she do that? She just decides to go after what she wants, what she needs. She needs healing from her daughter, and she's going to go get it. That's it. That's what she's thinking about. And she's willing to risk crossing the cultural distance between her and Jesus. Preston, can you help me control the slides? They're not working very well for me. I don't know what's going on. So when I go to the next one, you can just keep going. Thank you. She's able to be herself. She's able to claim her agency and really go for it with Jesus. She's a model for the courage to be who she is, to stand up. This is it. All of us are invited to claim authenticity, who we are. This is especially challenging for those of us who have to live with harmful stereotypes. And this is where I need to stop talking because as a white American Iowa man who checks every box of status, power, and privilege in our country, you know, I'm not, I'm not at risk of losing much in terms of stereotypes about me. Um, you know, but so that's why I am committed to learning, learning from others who do encounter stereotypes and trying to understand how those are at work in and around society. But every single one of us is invited to authenticity and to, and to excuse me, to recognize other people's authentic individuality and not embrace the stereotypes. So the second is critical introspection. This means doing the work of reflection, growing an awareness of how prejudicial stereotypes affect us. So the story uses the stereotypes. It also overturns them as we looked at it, and it reflects or it asks us to reflect on other ways we might dismiss people because of prejudicial stereotypes. It asks us to think about who are other people or people groups we might be tempted to think of as less than human, as undeserving of resources or dignity. Who's beneath us? We can also ask critical questions about who's generating the images? Who came up with that marketing scheme? Why is the media telling us this particular story about this particular person? How does it resonate with stereotypes? How is it breaking with them? Dr. Towns points out that we often need teachers who can guide us into critical introspection. Dr. Towns has become one of my own teachers when I'm reading her work and I'm learning from her. So teachers can be accessible in all kinds of places. And in our story, perhaps the woman becomes a teacher of Jesus. Maybe? At the very least, she becomes a teacher for Mark's audience in getting them to reflect and think about what's going on. Okay, finally, the... Uh, Third virtue that Dr. Towns invites us to embrace is hope. The woman hopes for healing for her daughter, but while she's, th- she's seeking that, she has to practice a hope that the dominant prejudicial stereotypes will not prevent her from the liberation and healing that she's seeking. This is a daunting task. She has to push through it, hoping against hope for liberation. 
Now, the original audience, they would have been contending with Jewish and Gentile relationships. And so the story is a story of hope for them, Jews and Gentiles, together embracing one another, meeting across division, receiving healing and liberation in the midst of the division. Dr. Towns asks all of us today, how will we hope against the cultural production of evil? This doesn't mean just wishful thinking. It means actively building practices, building communities that end prejudicial stereotypes, that work to overcome them person by person, interaction by interaction, doing the hard work of naming our own prejudices and bias while intentionally building bridges across divisions. So this is our invitation today, is to practice three, these three virtues and to facilitate a community where these virtues flourish. I want to end with a quote from Dr. Towns. Uh, it's a little longer, so there's a couple slides for this. She writes, We begin with ourselves. Each of us must answer the question, what will we do with the fullness and incompleteness of who we are as we stare down the interior material life of the cultural production of evil? The hierarchies of age, class, gender, sexual orientation, race, and on and on are held in place by violence, fear, ignorance, acquiescence. The end game is to win and win it all, status, influence, place, creation. Our world needs a new or perhaps ancient vision molded by justice and peace rather than the winning and losing if we are to unhinge the cultural production of evil. May it be so. May we receive this ancient vision of Jesus and this current modern vision of Dr. Towns and put it into practice for the sake of justice and peace. Amen. I want to take a moment uh, to pray as we often do, bring this before God and ask God to speak in the midst of this. So please join me in prayer. Loving God, well, thank you for Dr. Towns. Thank you for the many other womanist theologians and ethicists who have been our teachers and guides to see the evils of oppression in society and in the church. Would you help us continue down the path of liberation and healing? Help us to practice authenticity, critical introspection, and hope. We long to be free, oh God, free from prejudicial stereotypes, free from the temptation to win at all costs rather than making peace and justice. Guide us into your life-giving ways, oh God. Amen.